to James uh, chapter 2. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, it should be found on page uh, 1214. Uh, just before we read by way of introduction, you may remember when we started this series, uh, we indicated that James's purpose is that his readers uh, may be mature and complete not lacking anything. And as we work our way through the epistle, we will discover, and we've already begun to discover, that James is not so concerned about the fact that a person has made a profession of faith, although that is clearly important. But for James, he wants to know, is there a possession of grace? He wants to see that uh, in particular. And if we can bear both these things in mind as we work our way through uh, the epistle, uh, hopefully uh, that will prove helpful. Well then, James chapter 2 and from verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my, seat, by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, uh, discrimination is a major buzzword in contemporary society. Sexual discrimination, racial discrimination, social discrimination, the list uh, goes on. Uh, these uh, expressions are constantly on the agenda. And certainly throughout history, uh, men have attempted to exalt one group of people at the expense of another and even when attempts have been made to engineer a society of equals, and that was the goal, uh, you'll remember, of Marxist philosophy, uh, failure was inevitably uh, the result. Uh, George Orwell, in his uh, masterful satirical critique of Marxism uh, in Animal Farm, wrote, uh, and these words uh, are immortalized now, are they not? All men are equal, uh, but some are more equal than others. Fallen, sinful nature 
constantly promotes one group while demoting another. However, the landscape of discrimination has been effectively transformed by the gospel. Uh, Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying our faith union with Christ acts as a great leveler so that every believer is of equal value to God and has equal status conferred upon him by God. Now, we need to be careful. Paul is not saying that uh, distinctions have been obliterated, thereby destroying ethnicity, uh, sexuality, or social structure. The gospel does not aim to create a, a uniform egalitarianism. Distinctions remain, but discrimination, which values one person over another, has been dismantled. And in our passage, James confronts those who are intent upon defacing what is a major building block in the landscape of God's new society. His concern, his passionate concern, is that we do not show respect for one group at the expense of and to the detriment of another. Now, the opening verse of our passage sets the scene. Uh, for all that is to follow, there are three words in particular I want to pull out of that. Uh, first, uh, James addresses his hearers as his brothers. Uh, now, that's a phrase often used in the epistle to introduce a new subject. But here, I believe James is doing more than that. He's reminding his readers that there is a special, intimate relationship which they have with him and with one another as members of the family of God. There is a treasured equality of status between these believers and the leader of the Jerusalem church, the Lord's half-brother. Remember, as a student, I enjoyed the hospitality of a humble, wealthy Christian uh, woman whose family tree could be traced back to uh, 14th century Scottish uh, nobility. And one day we were teasing her about her blue blood and she replied, uh, because we are each united to Christ and members of his family, there is no social distinction between you and me. Wow, <laughs> that cut us down uh, to size. 
For her, the biblical term brother and sister meant exactly that. And James has recognized that it's possible to use words that describe a glorious equality of status, but then employ behavior that contradicts the very idea. So James addresses his hearers as his brothers. Secondly, he addresses his readers as uh, believers. Now, whenever we say, I believe, I have exercised saving faith in the Lord Jesus. James then asks, can your professed faith be verified in practice by the way you conduct your life. Now, whenever there is an observable inconsistency between our creed and our conduct, our belief and our behavior, then James's teaching is really going to get under our skin. He is going to make us feel extremely uncomfortable. Uh, And I'm sure fortunately for his readership, they knew the depth of his love for them. Uh, And so they could take that uncomfortable teaching uh, that made them want to kind of squirm uh, as James Uh, scratched uh, where it uh, itched. And so James uses the word believer here to challenge those for whom equality of uh, value and status is no more than mere words. Thirdly, James speaks of there being believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The text literally Reads and it's difficult to translate. It literally reads, Our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. The marginal reading has, Our Lord Jesus Christ who is the glory. We remember uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, I have glorified your name. And again, Hebrews tells us that he is the radiance of God's glory. The the glory of God and the character of God are indissolubly united. And throughout the course of his life, Jesus, by his behavior, reflected the character of God. The glory of God was made manifest by the way in which he conducted himself. You may well uh, remember that uh, when God gave the law, the purpose of the law, or certainly one of the purposes of the law, was to reflect God's character. God is saying, this is what I'm like. And in that law, God said, Leviticus 19.15, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, part of God's character. 
part of his glory. Do you remember how Jesus' enemies, reflecting upon uh, his own character, reviewing his character, said, uh, said in Luke 20 and 21, Teacher, we know that you do not show partiality. This is, this is one of the things that, uh, that stands out as we have observed you and your dealings with others. There is no discrimination. There is, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. Uh, that's the thing that uh, has particularly gripped us. Uh, of course, they went on. They had a, a reason for saying that, but that's another story. But they're saying, this is what sets you apart. This is what sets you apart. Christ did not distance himself from men because of their rank, their resources, or reputation, or lack of them. He was never swayed by a man's position or possessions. Think of all the encounters that he had with people rich and poor, high and low, Jew and Gentile. Now, this is uh, the point that we need to make. His followers, if instead of reflecting the glory of God as Jesus did, were in danger of obscuring it. Instead of engracing the gospel by their behavior, were in danger of disgracing the gospel. Hence, we have the resounding imperative in verse 1, don't show favoritism. And if we are tempted to ask, how am I guilty of that? How am I guilty of this kind of discrimination? Well, James uses a very graphic illustration in verse 2 uh, following uh, and interestingly, his teaching method is so reminiscent of that used by our Lord Jesus. And it's designed to expose the deceitfulness of the human heart. Here's a, here's a life story that you can identify with. Uh, does it ring any bells? Let's uh, modify the illustration just a little. Two strangers come to church. The first arrives by Rolls Royce and is greeted by the duty deacon, who quickly commandeers one of these comfy leather sofas at the back and wheels it down to the front, serves the rich man a latte and, of course, a piece of millionaire shortbread. Uh, sit there and enjoy the service. Uh, at the same time, a, mil a poorly dressed homeless man wanders in. Uh, well, it's marginally warmer in here than on the pavement in Perth Road. Uh, well, maybe this morning it wasn't, but certainly this evening, marginally warmer than in Perth Road. And he's told to stay clear of the seats. Uh, but instead, he can sit in a piece of newspaper on the floor at the back of the church. And then at the close of the service, 
the bulk of the congregation gravitate towards the millionaire in the comfy seat. He might be in a position to pay off the church's debt. Great. Or he might be prepared to issue an invitation to a fine dining experience in his home. Let's get to know him. But no one gives the poor man a second look. Well, he's more awkward to speak to. He might smell a little or a lot. Might even be forward enough to to ask for a sandwich. Avoid contact at all cost. Kind of uncomfortable. I wonder if we find ourselves giving our time and attention to those we consider to be attractive, mentally stimulating, and very little time to those we consider unattractive and emotionally exhausting. Aren't there some people who just drain you if you spend time speaking to them? Avoid at all costs. But is a jewel less precious because it comes in a plain box? How does James assess the the situation that he has described, not unlike the story we've told? Verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? How hard-hitting is that? You've become judges with evil thoughts. The Greek word for thoughts is one from which the English word dialogue comes. We weigh up the pros and cons before coming to a a decision. And so evil thoughts point to a carefully calculated attempt to achieve our own selfish ends so that we conclude he's worth cultivating but she's not speak to him not to her and so James goes on to point out four dangers associated with the kind of discriminatory behavior that he has been identifying first It impairs their judgment. Interestingly, James argues his case against discrimination not on the grounds that God does not choose, but, verse 5, on the grounds that he does choose. Who has he chosen? Uh, Well, Paul helps us out here. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of the world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's who God chooses, says Paul. Interestingly, uh, the Countess of Huntington, who was a great uh, supporter of the leaders of the 18th century evangelical awakening, uh, commented uh, on uh, Paul's passage in Corinthians and said that her favorite consonant in the whole of the alphabet was the consonant M. And if you heard that out of context, you would wonder, what does she mean? My favorite consonant is the consonant M. Well, it's because Paul did not write, not any were of noble birth. But he added an M. Not many were of noble birth. There were some. And the preferential treatment of the rich, simply because they are rich at the expense, neglect, and contempt of the poor, is seen by James to be one of the most nauseating forms of snobbery imaginable. Befriend him, not her. But you see, the world's nobodies have become the Lord's nobility. Isn't that a great thought? You say, I'm a nobody. The world's nobodies have become the Lord's nobility. Unconventional? Yes. For human choice is always on the grounds of ability, importance, influence, wealth, and so on. I remember when I played uh, football after school, uh, you know, we were all lined up against the wall and there were two captains. And each captain would take a turn of choosing, you'll be in my team, you'll be in mine, you'll be in my team, you'll be in mine. Who do you think was left after all of those choices were made? Well, it was a guy called Amelia. He had two left feet, which meant it was a great disadvantage to have him on your side. You see, team selection was based on skill and ability. That's the criterion that the world uses. That's who we want. But God chooses people whom the world would pass by. Remember, he chose the little nation of Israel. And what does he say of that choice in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6 following? The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. He loves you not because of your ability, your capacity, your usefulness. He loves you because he loves you. 
Now, James's point is made by contrasting the phrase God has chosen in verse 5 with the words you have insulted in verse 6. The people through whom God is intent upon advancing his kingdom and declared to be the blood royal of heaven, you've dismissed, says James, as being unworthy of your attention. Those whom God has chosen, you have insulted, do you realize? Goodness, this really gets under your skin, does it not? Secondly, their judgment was warped for they assessed others solely upon external appearances. You'll remember when Samuel thought one of David's brothers would make a great king. God said, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. The Lord looks, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A poorly dressed elderly couple met with the president of Harvard University and they said our son was once a student here before his accidental death. Uh, We'd like to erect a memorial for him, please. And the president replied, if we put up a statue for every dead student, the place would become like a cemetery. Oh, it's not a statue. It's a building that we want to erect. And the president glanced disdainfully at the gingham dress the woman was wearing And the homespun suit the man had on. And he said, have you any idea how much a building costs? Why, uh, these buildings here on campus are worth more than seven and a half million dollars. And the wife turned to her husband and said, if that's all it costs, why don't we build our own university? And they went on. Mr. and Mrs. Stanford built Stanford University in uh, California, one of the top American uh, universities. Much, uh, I'm sure, to the surprise of the Princeton president. But you see, he had evaluated this couple on the basis of external appearance. Evil judgment. Take a look. Quickly conclude what these people are like. James' short-sighted usher had swallowed the lie that external appearance is an index of true worth. Now, uh, note in the passing The fear of discrimination can put incredible pressure upon people to reconstruct their past. Ashamed of their humble origins, they can go to extraordinary lengths uh, to hide their past. 
asked, what did your father do for a living? You might answer, oh, he was in oil, which translates he was a petrol pump attendant. Or they might say he was in waste management, which being interpreted means he was a dustman. Uh, But you get the picture. Uh, Hide your past, lest you be discriminated against. I think there's uh, transparency is lost in all of this, you see. I think we, we see a little evidence of this in, in Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, you'll remember. Uh, he said to her, uh, go and call your husband. And she says, well, don't have a husband. Which was true, but it wasn't transparent. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. Uh, Now, there could well be a number of reasons for her answering Jesus in the way in which she did. But here is a woman who, because of her past, had been negatively discriminated against by the whole community. That's why she came out in the middle of the day to collect water. Tongues were wagging. There she is. What a woman. Uh, And she didn't want Jesus... To discriminate, I have no husband. Tendency to obscure uh, the past. And, and many people hide behind masks because of a fear of being discriminated against, thought less of. Well, the gospel encourages us to remove the mask, to become transparent. Because God who has called us to himself operates, and we need to grasp this, operates with an entirely different value system from the world. Despite your past, God says, we we can still work together. I can still work in you. I can still change and transform you. You're not a big problem for me, despite the past. Thirdly, and of great significance, is that our preoccupation with a person's external appearance can distract us from their internal spiritual need. And this is equally true of both rich and poor. Do you remember the rich young ruler who encountered Jesus. Uh, I wonder if his wealth was a distracting factor for some of Jesus' disciples. Uh, He would have made an invaluable addition to the disciple band, would he not? He could make their lives much more comfortable. We'd be able to dine out in style if he was one of our number. But Jesus, you'll remember, exposed the stranglehold of idolatry that wealth had over his life. And when the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, Jesus didn't call him back and say, we'll make an exception in your case. You're too important a resource to lose. 
will go easy on your sin. No. Despite loving the young man, Jesus let him walk away. Why? Because his spiritual condition was Jesus' principal concern. Only by reflecting upon his bondage to his wealth would he, with the Spirit's help, recognize the great spiritual impediment in his life. The spiritual well-being of the individual was more important to Jesus than anything else. Remember the man dropped through the roof by his friends. Uh, They wanted Jesus to heal him, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Why? The great priority, as far as Jesus saw it, was the man's spiritual well-being. Yes, uh, yes, we can make him well, we can get him to walk. But his principal need, his main need, is spiritual renewal. And this begs the question, of course, in our dealings with others. Should the great concern of our hearts not be with how best to help them in their spiritual development. You see, if all we see is an Yves Saint Laurent suit from Bond Street on the one hand, or a Primark uh, knockoff on the other, then we're likely to conclude that the rich man needs nothing, and the poor man, if he needs anything, it's a hot meal. But Both rich and poor are equally in need of God's grace and forgiveness. And and if we don't get that, if we don't grasp that, then we really need to begin by asking, how important is grace uh, to me in my life? You know, the most important piece of clothing we can possess is that which Jesus provides. And it's the robe of righteousness, which is received from him by faith. And without that robe, we cannot with any confidence stand in the presence of God. God's Evaluation of us does not reflect the world standards, remember. In the, in the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus told, a guest was found who was not wearing the wedding garment provided by the host. Did he think his own clothing was adequate, more acceptable than the host's provision? Was he a self-made man who wanted to flaunt his worth? If so, he was self-deceived. He was blind to his own spiritual poverty and need. Now, whether we are confronted with those who glory in the riches or bemoan their material poverty, surely our primary concern should 
be to help them see their their great need of Christ and his righteousness. That's the thing. Fourthly, James concludes his case by asking if the wealthy people his readers were fawning over were not in fact the greatest opponents to the gospel. Verse 6, you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of uh, him to whom you belong? In Acts 16 and 19, we're told that Paul and Silas cast out the spirit of divination from a slave girl. And as a result, they were dragged before the authorities by her owners. Why? Well, Luke tells us, because they, that is the owners, realized that their hope of making money was gone. These wealthy men uh, saw the tap was, was turned off, no more money from this girl. And it caused them to drag Paul and Silas into court and accuse them uh, as they did. Or, or later on in Ephesus, you'll remember, uh, after uh, Paul and Silas had, had preached there, uh, there was a great riot in the city uh, promoted by Demetrius the silversmith and, and others like him simply because they saw the erosion of their wealth as a result of the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, nobody else uh, or no great crowds would want to come and buy little silver statues of uh, Diana or Artemis. Uh, hits our pocket. So let's give these Christians a, a difficult time. And that's been the case, is it not, throughout the centuries. Uh, think of the difficulties that Wilberforce faced from the wealthy when he sought to bring a bill to bring about the abolition of the slave trade. It was the wealthy, those who had a vested interest, who were not only anti-Wilberforce, but uh, anti the evangelical constituency and anti-Christ, slandering his name. I wonder then, are we guilty of discrimination, of showing preferential treatment? Uh, both rich and poor are made in the image of God. The intellectually brilliant and the most mentally challenged, made in the image of God. Uh, construct your own contrasts but each made in the image of God. It was Thomas Manton who wrote, God never made a creature for contempt. Everyone is made in the image of God. But when we gravitate towards those whom we consider to be attractive people, saying I'll sit beside him but not her, I'll speak to him but not her, then James is saying, do you recognize the gravity of what 
you're doing. Now, some have likened the epistle to an encounter with itching powder. Uh, But I think that comparison is far too negative. For James' goal is not ultimately our discomfort. Remember what we said in the introduction. It is Christ-like maturity. And so I prefer to think of the epistle as sandpaper. It has, yes, an abrasive quality, but it's part of a process that's designed to see our lives transformed into showroom condition. I can remember as a child watching my father, who was a woodworker, and it was frustrating watching him because he took forever. After I thought the piece was finished, he would sand away And then he would wet the wood to raise the grain and he would sand away. And then he would get a a finer sandpaper and he would sand away. And I would, but are you not finished yet? No, no, there's more to be done. There's more to be done. And throughout the course of our lives, as we are exposed to God's word, the spirit is going to come and say, you know, there's, there's more to be done. There's more to be done because the goal, you see, is to get you into showroom condition, to reflect the glory of God. And if it hurts, and often it does, if it gets under your skin, and inevitably that's going to be the case, It's because God has ambitions of grace for your life that far outstrips your wildest imaginings. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do bless you that each one of us has been made in your image to reflect your glory. We thank you, Father, that in calling us uh, to yourself, you confer upon us uh, a status that we do not deserve to be your nobility, the blood royal of heaven seated with Christ in heavenly places. As we begin to appreciate uh, all that you have conferred upon us, help us, we pray, to recognize the dangers of discrimination and to seek your help to value others as you value them, to refuse to allow the the world's standards to dictate how we uh, evaluate others and their worth. And so change as we pray from one degree of glory 
to another. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.